okay, there's playing the piano, and then there's that. <laughs> what was that, you? And thank you so much. That's the combination of practice and rare giftedness. To the glory of the Lord. So wonderful. Wow. Hmm, I have to recover from that was thrilling to hear. The Lord is worthy of the best, right? Always the best. Well, as you know, uh, the theme of this week is the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, that means Galatians chapter 5. So I'd like you to take your Bible, if you will, and let's turn to Galatians chapter 5. My responsibility as we begin our time together is to talk about what it means to walk by the Spirit, which, of course, leads up to the fruit of the Spirit. But in order to get there, we'll start in verse 16. Let me read to you from... Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So verse 16 and verse 25, bracket this passage with instruction to walk by the Spirit. We're all familiar with that. That's a very familiar phrase, very familiar command to us. I want to see if I can't help us uh, to, to understand it in a way that can not only get a grip on our minds, but a real grip on our hearts. So I want to back away from this passage altogether for a few minutes, just keeping in your mind the idea of walking by the Spirit and what that means. And I want you to turn to the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 17. It's a, a wonderful providence that I happen to be uh, studying and preaching John 17 during these very weeks. And here we find ourselves in reference to this message in that same great chapter. I want to read three verses here that come from the lips of our Lord in this, which is the true Lord's Prayer. Verse 17, 18, and 19. 
speaking of the disciples in particular, and of course beyond them all who will believe because of their ministry, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I remember a number of years ago reading that statement, I sanctify myself, and stopping. Jesus saying, I sanctify myself. Only he could say that. It's a stunning statement. He said, I do that for their sakes, those who are mine, those who the Father gives to me, those who believe. Our Lord has established then the perfect pattern for sanctification of a person, of a human. Granted, he is God, but he's also a man. He establishes for us the pattern of sanctification. Yes, he was holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sin, without sin, the Scripture says. But he still gives us a pattern of sanctification. I'm convinced that he could not have sinned because it would have been impossible for God to sin, and he was God. But still, he gives us a pattern for sanctification. I sanctify myself. Could be stated this way. I am continually sanctifying myself. Already the Holy One, already without sin, what can he teach us about sanctification? He is saying to us, I constantly separate myself from sin. I constantly sustain perfect holiness. Though tempted relentlessly and even beyond anything we could imagine because he never gave in, he would have then experienced temptation to the max. What does he mean, I sanctify myself, and in what way does he do that? He says here that this sanctification is connected to the truth. He says in verse 17 that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. And in verse 17, he referred to being sanctified in truth. That gives us pretty clear insight into what he meant by I sanctify myself. He sanctified himself by living constantly in perfect conformity to the truth. That is to say, perfect conformity to divine truth. Perfect sanctification is perfect obedience to God's holy will as revealed in his perfect word. If you look at the life of Christ, this is what marks him is not only the knowledge of the word and will of God, but perfect obedience to it. Let me just show you a few samples of what he says in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 4 
and verse 34, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. In chapter 5 of the Gospel of John, it's the same thing. Verse 17, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. It's saying I'm working along with God. I'm doing what God does. And of course, for this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Truly, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. He says, I do the will of the Father. I do what the Father does. I do nothing but what the Father does. Down in the 30th verse of that chapter, he says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is one of the wonders of the incarnation, perfect obedience to the will and word and ways of God. In the sixth chapter of John, again, we read in verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In chapter 7, again in verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. I seek to do the will of the Father. I seek to work as the Father works. I seek only to do what the Father does, and I seek only to glorify the Father. In chapter 8 of John's Gospel, Verse 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. I do the Father's will, I do the Father's work, I do everything as the Father does it, I do it for His glory, and I do exactly what He tells me to do, and never anything else. In verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. You want to know what sanctification is? That's it. That's exactly what it is. And he continually sanctified himself by his obedience. In the 14th chapter of John's gospel, just one verse, and I'll come back to it later. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. So what was the motive for this obedience? What was it? That the world may know that I love the Father. Perfect sanctification is perfect obedience to God's perfect will as revealed in his perfect word, motivated by perfect love. That's why Paul says love is the fulfilling of the whole law. He obeyed perfectly, and so the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So, perfect sanctification is flawless obedience from the heart to the will of God, 
motivated by love. Motivated by love. In the 15th chapter of John, in the 10th, 10th verse, he says, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Listen to this. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Obedience is about love. We are sanctified in the same way. We are sanctified in the same way. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. It's about obeying divine truth, motivated by love for God. So if you want to know what sanctification is, being like Christ. That's why, that's why the Apostle Paul says, I haven't arrived, but I press toward the mark, right? For the prize of the upward call. Well, what's the prize of the upward call? When we're called up, we're going to be like Christ. That's the prize. I'm not there yet, but until I get there, I'm going to press toward Christ-likeness. Another way to look at it from Paul's vantage point is 2 Corinthians 3.18. As we gaze at the glory of the Lord, we are changed into his image, moving from one level of glory to the next by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, by what power did Christ sanctify himself? By what power was he enabled to live a perfectly holy life in perfect, flawless obedience to God's perfect will revealed by God and be motivated by perfect love? By what power did he do that? By what power did he do that? That's a really important question. You say, well, hush, he's God, it's his own power. Not so fast. Not so fast. Another mystery of the reality of the incarnation is to consider what the scripture says concerning the power that Christ possessed. Listen to Isaiah 11. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. That's Jesse, the father of David. He will come in the Davidic line. And this it says of him, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Later on in the book of Isaiah, in a very familiar portion of Scripture, in chapter 61, we read this about the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. To bring good news to the afflicted, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. It's talking about Christ, the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord would rest on him. You remember in Luke chapter 4, he quoted Isaiah 61 and says, today this is fulfilled in your 
presence. Where was the power coming from that sanctified Jesus? The answer is from the Holy Spirit. Part of the mystery of the the kenosis, the self-emptying, the condescension of Christ, was that he set aside the independent use of his own attributes and yielded himself to the working of the Holy Spirit. That's why in Matthew 12, he said, you could say a word against the Son of Man, but you can't say I'm demonic without blaspheming the Holy Spirit. He went forth in his ministry. It even tells us in the New Testament in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's exactly what it says in Luke 4, 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. That follows up the text on his baptism where the Spirit descends upon him. It was the Holy Spirit that empowered the sanctification of the Savior. Listen to the testimony again of the book of Acts and Peter in chapter 10. Verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, meaning the ministry of Christ, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. Listen to this. How Jesus of Nazareth, was anointed by God with the Holy Spirit and with power and went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. Paul even says that he was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit from the dead. The power that flowed through The Son of Man was the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You have this in common with Christ. The same Holy Spirit that was in Christ, the same Holy Spirit that was in Christ, empowering his perfect sanctification is the same Holy Spirit that's in you. The same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the same Holy Spirit who will raise your mortal body from the dead. Yes, Jesus is a pattern we can follow. That's the wonder of his condescension. He said in John 14 to the disciples, The Holy Spirit has been with you and shall be in you. The remarkable meaning of that is, listen to this. He has been with you in me. He has been with you in me. He will be in you. That's why he said, it's better that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Spirit will not come. Yes, the Spirit is with you in me but he will be in you. So we know that Jesus 
perfectly obeyed the will of the Father, the word of the Father, did exactly what the Father did, never did anything the Father didn't do, spoke only what the Father told him to speak. This is perfect, holy sanctification. And he did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're saying, what in the world does this have to do with what we're talking about? I think you're getting there, aren't you? Look at 1 John 2. 1 John 2. Verse 6. We'll just jump in, land on verse 6. The one who says he abides in him, that is in Christ, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So how did Jesus walk? Could we say he walked by the Spirit? Absolutely. He walked by the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit. He walked by the Spirit, and it produced loving, perfect obedience to God. Nothing legalistic about that. That's divine power and love motivating obedience. And by the way, one day you'll do the same. You will. We may not recognize you when that happens because you'll be very different and so will I. But one day, Scripture says, 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, but it doesn't appear what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we'll see him just as he is. That's what heaven is. That's what glorification is, Christ-likeness. We'll have a body like unto his glorious body, but more importantly, we will, we will literally manifest that perfect level of loving obedience. that perfect level of loving obedience. Just one other scripture to think about as we think about all these things is Romans 8. This is something that the law can't do. Verse 3, it was weak through the flesh. But God did, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The law is holy, just, and good. The law is a reflection of God's nature. We ought to obey the law. We can't do it in the flesh. But, verse 4 says, the requirement of the law can be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but what? According to the Spirit. So all we're talking about when we talk about walk by the Spirit is perfect obedience to God's perfect law motivated by perfect love. Only Christ could do it at that level. And he did. And God was pleased. 
But our God is gracious, isn't he? Because even though we stumble and fall short of that, we are, in his view, in Christ. Grasp that. So there's a very real sense in which Christ's perfect sanctification is credited to us by grace. And so, in a sense, we need to live up to who we are. So, with that in your thought, you can go back to Galatians. And I just want you to look again at this text. There's a command here. Verse 16, walk by the Spirit. That's the command. Present imperative, keep on walking. Walking indicates patience, progression, um, continuity, a kind of normal pattern. That's why the word walk is used. Constancy, it involves effort. It's constancy day in, day out. Scripture loves the word walk. Loves it. Sometimes it uses the word run, but most often when you're running away from something. Living the Christian life is about walking. I'll give you a little walking theology. Romans 6, walk in new life. Romans 13, walk decently. Ephesians 4, Colossians 1, walk worthily. Philippians 3, walk together in unity. Ephesians 4, walk in humility. Romans 13, walk in purity. 1 Corinthians 7, walk in contentment. 2 Corinthians 5, walk in faith. Ephesians 2, walk in good works. 2 Thessalonians 3, walk in separation. Ephesians 5, walk in love. Ephesians 5, walk in light. Ephesians 5, walk in wisdom. Third John, walk in truth. Sum it up, walk like Jesus. It's enough to say if you walk in the Spirit, all those things will happen because I just gave you another list, essentially, of the fruit of the Spirit. That's why... Um, Paul says to the Colossians, therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You have a perfect pattern of sanctification in our Lord. And his motive was love. His motive was love. Walk like Jesus. Walk in love toward God in obedience to the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we come to Galatians 6, and just to remind you that apparently the believers here were having some difficult times trying to figure out how to live, how to walk, how to live in a daily way to honor God. They were coming out of a Gentile background. Obviously, some of them had some Jewish heritage. There were Jews mingled in these Gentile churches. 
But there had descended upon uh, these believers, what are called Judaizers, people who wanted to impose legalism on believers who had been set free. Chapter 5, verse 1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and don't be subject, sub, subjected again to a yoke of slavery. The Judaizers tried to undermine the authority of Paul. First, they went after the authority of Paul. Galatians 1 and 2 answers that. Then the Judaizers tried to undermine the gospel of grace. Chapters 3 and 4 answers that. Then the Judaizers tried to force Christians to reject their freedom and come under the bondage of the law. And then chapters 5 and 6 clears up that. Legalism is rejected, but that does not mean that Christians are free to break God's law. What it means is they're free to obey it by love in the power of the Holy Spirit. They're not free to indulge the flesh. No. Verse 13 of chapter 4, you're not free, brethren, to turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. They're not free to harm each other but to serve each other. You're not supposed to bow, bite and devour one another and be consumed by one another. You're not supposed to be rebellious. You're supposed to be loving. So loving toward God and toward one another. And again, love fulfills the whole law. In order to do that, he then says, walk by the Spirit. So you possess the Holy Spirit, and along with the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. One specific thing you, you very much need is promised in Romans 5.5. 5. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We not only have the Holy Spirit, we have love that comes with the Spirit. And in the power of the Spirit and by the love the Spirit pours into our hearts, we obey God's Word. Motivated by love for God and love for Christ. And you, you're not, I'm not saying you need to go in a corner and, and love God more. Try to generate some love. If I were to say to you, now, okay, everybody stop, everything. I'm going to give you five minutes to love God more. Come on. Go, go, go. Love Christ more. Go. Pointless. What would make you love God more? To think about his nature, his work, his gifts, his grace, all that makes him glorious. It's not in a vacuum that you generate that. It's in the full knowledge of God and the full knowledge of Christ as revealed in Scripture. That's why 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, as you gaze at his glory, you're transformed from one level of glory to the next. That the most marvelous contribution can be made to your sanctification by being in the Scripture, seeing the glory of God, seeing the glory of Christ. It's not about emotion, it's about truth. And I, I say to you, like the Apostle Paul, I certainly haven't arrived, but having spent so many years of my life looking at Christ 
25 years preaching through the four gospels, then through Hebrews, through all the epistles, and then through passages in the Old Testament that picture Christ, then through the book of Hebrews many times, writing on all those things. I can never get enough of him. And my sanctification is completely tied to how much I love him, which is completely tied to how much I understand him and know him. So walking in the spirit isn't some mystical thing. It's obedience to the truth of God, motivated by love and energized by the indwelling Holy Spirit. It was that for Christ. And it's that for us. If that's what you're doing, verse 16 says, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. That's how you, vic you win the victory. The Holy Spirit is present in every believer to empower that God-honoring freedom to do what is right, to generate love for God and Christ by illuminating the glory of God in Scripture. It is the Holy Spirit alone who can subdue the flesh, and it's when Christ is more glorious than anything else, when you desire Christ more than you desire your sin, when you desire what honors him more than you desire what dishonors him. That's walking in the Spirit. And then you will not fulfill the sarks, the, the, the desires, epithumia, the longings, the evil yearnings of your unredeemed humanness that still remain. I'm not saying it's easy. There's a command here, but there's the recognition of a conflict. Look at the next verse. There's a recognition of a conflict. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Most commentators would say that's talking about the human spirit, that there is built into us a conflict, could well be the Holy Spirit, but all you have to do is remember Romans 7 where Paul says, I don't do what I want to do and I do what I don't want to do and I'm trapped in this, uh, in this life with a body, a corpse attached to me. Flesh is weak, but the spirit is strong. The conflict is going to be there and the conflict is fierce because the flesh is powerful. Look at the deeds of the flesh in verse 19. The deeds of the flesh are evident immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. You know where that's coming from? That's not coming from outside of you. Where's it coming from? It's coming from inside of you. It's not what comes into the man that defiles him, Jesus said. It's what comes out of the man that defiles him. That's in you. That's in, all that is in you. It's in me. How is that going to be subdued? How is it possible to subdue that? Yes, we have been delivered from the penalty of sin if we are saved. That's been taken care of. We will one day be delivered from the presence of sin. But right now, we are still feeling its power. 
It no longer has dominion over us. Paul makes that clear in Romans. But it is still present. Paul says in Romans 7, Do you not know, brethren, I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she's not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit. Wow, that's wonderful. But it's after that that he says, I don't do what I ought to do. I do what I don't want to do. Even with the presence of the Holy Spirit, even with a, a new nature, a redeemed self, there is a great conflict. The conflict is great. Pretty easy to see who's winning. If you do anything in verses 20 and 21, the flesh is winning. If in your attitude and action, you're characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, who's winning? Holy Spirit. So when we think about what it is to walk in the Spirit, it's, it's, not, it's not a complicated thing. And Jesus is our model. So the call to us is to walk by the Spirit, and the perfect example is Jesus. Perfect obedience motivated by perfect love, energized by the Holy Spirit. That's the example. And if you say you abide in him, then you ought to walk the way he walked. If you do that, you'll find your life characterized by verses 22 and 23. And I know you don't want to be characterized by verses 19 to 21. In fact, if you are, let me warn you, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're not a believer if that's your pattern. You say, well, sometimes I see that. Of course you do. And if you say you don't, you're a liar. If we say we have no sin, we're lying. But is that the practice of your life? If you find yourself living in verses 19 and 21, the message to you may not be buck up, buddy, and live in the Spirit. It may be recognize that you don't have the Holy Spirit because you're not even in the kingdom of God. But if your struggle 
is to stay in verses 22 and 23. And your heart is grieved when you slip back that kind of direction and that kind of desire is evidence of a transformed heart. Father, we thank you that we've been able to spend a few minutes together tonight just setting things in our minds that can help us. Thank you for these precious people who are here. I look out at the faces of these young people and I realize, Lord, that uh, they are in a very, very unique place, exposed to faithful men and women who love you, love your word, and have committed their whole lives to pouring it into generation after generation of young people, young men and women, who can impact the world for your glory and who can live to your honor. Lord, we understand that there's joy in walking by the Spirit. There's delight in walking by the Spirit. It's not grievous. It's obedience by love, not obedience by fear. So I pray, Lord, that you will show us Christ. You will just show us Christ. May we do, in a sense, what the psalmist said, set the Lord always before us. And therefore, be glad. Show us Christ constantly as revealed in the word so that our love for him increases and increases and increases. Yes, we love, but we need to love him more. Show us more of his glories so that in seeing his glory to a greater and greater degree, we will love him more. And motivated by that love in the power of the Spirit, our redeemed souls will override the longings of our unredeemed humanity. And we can live to your glory. That is our prayer. And we ask it in the name of the Savior. Amen.